0: You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Luke chapter 6, we're going through the gospel of Luke chapter by chapter and verse by verse, just an exciting study. We're, we're learning uh, so much about Jesus and, and, and being challenged by his teachings and, and today will be no different. We're going to look at Luke six twelve. Uh, To 36. I want to ask you guys a question. Have you ever had anyone hate your guts? Maybe someone that would like to kill you. If they could. If it wasn't illegal, you'd already be dead. Or at least they they wished you were dead. If so, then Jesus can relate with you. Because as we left off in our last study. In in chapter 6 verse 11. Jesus had been challenging the religious leaders. And their system on a number of different levels. And they are absolutely infuriated with him. And they're now discussing what to do with him. What are we going to do with this radical teacher? And we all know how that ends up. And in verse 11 of chapter 6 it says, They were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And so here Jesus is in the midst of this situation. And I want to ask you guys... How you handle yourself in those situations. Do you seek to protect yourself by running around trying to salvage your reputation? Do you attack your enemies hoping to make them look bad and to elevate yourself? Do you get depressed, sleepless nights, totally filled with worry and anxiety, isolating yourself, giving up on life? Is that how you respond Is that how you handle yourself in these situations? Well, I want to take a close look at how Jesus handled himself in the midst of this persecution. In the midst of people hating his guts and wanting to kill him. (coughs) How he handled his enemies. It says, now it came to pass in those days. In what days? In the days that Jesus was being persecuted and hated. In a plot and a plan was being formulated to take him out. In those days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And so this is how Jesus handled himself. His example to us is that he sought the Lord in prayer. It wasn't that Jesus didn't care. I think sometimes we have this mentality that that Jesus just didn't care at all what people said or thought what they did to him, as they're dragging him off, beating him and pulling his beard out, that he just doesn't care. or, Or that somehow Jesus is oblivious to this, that he's so busy ministering to people that he has no idea. Look, Jesus was fully man. That's what Luke wants us to understand. He had feelings. He had emotions. Jesus is fully God. So he's not stupid. He's not oblivious to this. He knows what's happening. In fact, he came for that very purpose. He's not unconcerned about it. He he isn't oblivious to it. He just handled it properly by taking all of his worries to the Father, the only one who can truly bring clarity to these kind of situations. You you know what I mean? When you're in the midst of these things and you're staying up all night and you're worried about it and you're fretting and, and, and you're trying to figure out why people hate you, it's only the Father that can bring clarity to that. That can give you wisdom in how to handle yourself. But we want to figure it out on our own, don't we? we? We want to put together a plan that's going to solve this. But it's only the Lord that will give us wisdom. It's only God that can take care of the problem in the first place. But for some reason, we don't see the need to, to take it to the Lord. Even though it's simple and it's elementary, we, we would rather figure it out on our own. But Jesus sets the example for us of taking it to the Lord. Like Philippians chapter 4. Being anxious for nothing. But in everything. Two extremes. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything. With prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. Make your requests known to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what we can do as we go to the Lord in prayer. We can give him our worries and he gives us his peace. But Jesus was not only praying in light... Of his present difficulties. He was praying in preparation. For some very important decisions. That he was about to make. And so his motivation for prayer. Is kind of twofold. Difficulties that are surrounding him. But also decisions. That he needs to make. And the decisions that he's about to make. Will set the course. For Christianity. It will launch the church. Jesus chooses His apostles. If you look at verse 13, it says, When it was day, and so after praying all night long, he called his disciples to himself. Now, at this point, Jesus has a multitude of people that are following him. And he calls them to himself. And from this multitude, he chooses twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter. And Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. These 12 men that Jesus chooses, we know them as the apostles or the disciples. They are the instruments by which God plans to change the world. And every one of us here who has a relationship with Jesus Christ, is a byproduct of one of these 12 men's ministry. If you've ever thought of it that way. But these men were hugely important to the launching of Christianity. And the word apostle, it means one who is sent. And so these men become sort of a microcosm, I think, of of our own ministry. And the fact that each one of us is called, sent out. To be used of God. It wasn't just these 12. But each of us has been given a ministry. Each of us has been sent out. And and that's the first thing I I think that, that we learn as Jesus chooses these apostles. Is that we're all sent. Not in the sense that we're all apostles with a capital A. That we all hold the office of an apostle. We know that isn't true. But we all have the ministry of an apostle. And that is being sent. A second thing that we see with the choosing of these men is that God chooses the foolish things of the world. This wasn't a group of wealthy, influential, intelligent men. These were fishermen. There's a rebel in here, a a zealot, a a man who was rebelling against the government. You know those types, you know, that that live up in the mountains in Montana and have like 400 assault weapons and make their own bombs out of. Drano and gunpowder and stuff. You know these kind of guys. Jesus chooses one of these guys to be an apostle. I mean, Ted Kaczynski's not on my list of guys to be an apostle. But th- this is the, the, the kind of people that Jesus chooses because he knows that he can radically transform a heart. And, and the other thing about that is that he chooses these foolish men. You've got a zealot, Simon the Zealot. was rebelling against the Roman government and then you have Matthew or who is also known as Levi we saw him in the previous chapter being called by Jesus he was a tax collector he worked for the Roman government talk about an explosive situation let's put a a zealot, a a guy that's rebelling against the Roman government. Let's team him up with a tax collector, a guy that's going around collecting taxes to give to the Roman government. This is perfect. I mean, these guys are probably looking at each other like, is this a joke? What what are we doing? Do you want to fight? (laughs) The, The other thing is that some of these guys are super well known, not always for the best reasons. I mean, Judas is known as the guy that was a traitor and betrayed Jesus. But Peter became a pillar in the early church. He's often known for the stupid things he said, but just about half the book of Acts is dedicated to him. He leads 3,000 people to Jesus on the day of Pentecost. Peter's an important dude. He's well known. But then you got guys like Bartholomew, who we have no idea what they did. They're, they're anonymous, really. And again, I think that's a great picture Of our ministry. Some of you are going to have up front. Very well known conspicuous kinds of ministries. And others are going to be behind the scenes. And nobody really knows who you are or what you do. But you're all important. Hopefully none of you are Judas's. But it stands to reason that that some of us will be well known. and, And others will not be. And so Jesus spends all night in prayer. On the one hand, because of his difficulties. On the other hand, because of his decisions. And then choosing these men. And notice he doesn't give excuses or a disclaimer. Like, I'm really sorry that I didn't choose all of you. Notice that he also didn't choose any women. And that's a completely different uh, Bible study and teaching on the role of women in the church. Which I I happen to, to be a... A complementarian, you can actually go to my blog and, and read about it. I've been writing about the, the role of women in ministry. There, there's three views of, of women's role in ministry. There's a, a liberal view, egalitarian view, that basically says women can hold any office or position in the church. There's a, a complementarian, a moderate view that basically says women can hold every office and position in the church except that of an elder. And then there is the, the liberal view that says that, or, or excuse me, the very conservative view, I should say, that, that says, it's the traditional view, that, that says that women can only do a few things in the church. They can teach kids, they can teach other women but they can't give out communion. They they can't uh, lead worship. Th- these kinds of things. And and here at Calvary Chapel, um, at, at this uh, church, we we believe in in the moderate view, the complementarian uh, viewpoint of women's role in ministry. I believe women can do anything in the church. Give out communion. There's nothing that's masculine about that. Uh, you know, lead worship uh, at, at times. Uh, teach, and, and I think even uh, with men in the presence uh, of that teaching, as, as long as it's known that they aren't an authority in the church. I think the only thing that a woman cannot do in the church is hold that position of an elder, a pastor, authority over men, and I think the Bible is clear on that, and unless we want to uh, just completely spin the Bible to say something other than what it says, I, I think we have to, to believe that. And Jesus, in choosing leaders, and choosing people that are going to launch the church, he chooses men. He chooses foolish men. He chooses men. And then he takes these men and he comes down with them and stands on a level place with a multitude of people from, from the entire region, from Judea and Jerusalem, that's to the south, and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, that's to the north, they're, they're in the Galilee region, they're, they're around Capernaum right now, where Jesus spent the majority of his time. And so people flocked to Jesus from the entire region, from the south, from the north, and they came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And so people were attracted to Jesus' teachings because they were radical and they were authoritative. He taught as one having authority. He didn't just quote other people. He spoke with conviction. And people were attracted to that. As well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. And so the demon possessed are coming to Jesus. And they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him. For power went out from him and healed them all. And so Jesus right away takes his apostles and just throws them into the fire of ministry. And people were coming from from all over to hear Jesus teach, to be touched by him, to touch him. And why do you think that people had such a yearning for Jesus? I mean, throughout the Gospels, you see people just flocking to Jesus. They didn't have to offer gimmicks. You know, they didn't have a guy in a bunny suit out in front. You know, hey, come to church, you know. They didn't give kids lollipops and offer people money. There were no gimmicks. There were no games They weren't soft-peddling anything. Why is it that you think that people were so longing for Jesus? And why don't we see that same intense desire for Jesus today? Now, some of it is our fault as Christians. Some of it is our fault as the church. Because the church is not authentic. There's nothing relevant about it. And people just think, why should I bother? But even as followers of Jesus... We don't see this kind of yearning and this kind of desire. People have sort of a, a laissez-faire kind of an attitude about church and, and, and about worship and about gathering and fellowshipping. It's kind of like, ah, you know, take it or leave it when it's convenient. When, if the weather's nice, well, then I've got to go to the lake. If the weather's horrible, then I can't drive on the roads. And, you know, literally when the moon is blue, you know, then, then, I, then I may go if it works into my schedule, if there's nothing great on TV that morning or the the football isn't happening. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. Why don't we see people longing and yearning for Jesus today? Well, I think Jesus gives us the answer to that in his teachings. Jesus, as he has these people gathered, this multitude gathered, including the apostles that he's just chosen, he uses this as an opportunity to teach And these teachings that really go from verse 20 through the end of the chapter, we're only going to look at about half of the teachings this week, and then we'll finish it up next week. But these teachings, they fly in the face of the world's values. Jesus' teachings here exalt what the world despises. And maybe as we read it and we study it this morning, maybe you're going to go, you know what? Man, Jesus exalts what I despise. These teachings reject what the world admires. And maybe you're going to go, you know what? This is a rejection of what I admire. And if that's the case, then you really need to, to do a, an intense look at your life and to see that if you're going in the right direction. See, Jesus is calling us to be counterculture. Jesus is calling us to be radically opposed to the pattern of this world and to have our life line up with him. And so if after reading this and, and hearing these things, if you say, I'm in opposition to this, then you have to know that you're in opposition to God. This isn't radical Christianity at all. This is Christianity. This is what Jesus commands and calls us to do. And he's compelling you and I to follow these things this morning, to be counterculture. These teachings absolutely Fly in the face of the world's values. And it's a, it's a call for you to live counterculturally, to reject the pattern of this world, and to begin to follow the pattern of God. Now, this has nothing to do with isolation. And unfortunately, that's what the church, in large part, has chosen to do. Okay, we're not supposed to have anything to do with the world, we're supposed to be counterculture. That means I hate culture. I, I hate the world out there. I hate art, I hate music. I hate everything that isn't Christian. And so now we have our own subculture of Christian music, of Christian art. If it's not Thomas Kincaid, then it's not good. Really? Because he paints little churches in the mountains? I mean, not everybody likes that kind of art. I wouldn't have one of his paintings. They just, they don't appeal to me. It's like a perfect little world and perfect little people. We're not perfect people. It's, It's kind of a... A world that doesn't exist. But some people like that. But it's not necessarily right or wrong because it's Christian or that it's Christian music. And so that makes it good. And we look down upon those artists who have chosen to go the route of just making good music and using it as an influence to point people to Jesus. Oh, they're a sellout. They're selling out for the man. For what, man? For money? Well, believe you me, the Christians are making a lot of money too. Stephen Curtis Chapman's not broke. Let's just figure that out right now. And, and most of the record labels that are Christian record labels are owned by secular labels. It's just like Fox News, you know. They're Republican and they put verses up and they let Rick Warren speak. It's because there's a market for it. It's not because Murdoch... Is a Christian. He owns Fox. Have you seen the programming on Fox? It's the same person. He just knows there's a niche. There's a market for conservative, right-wing, evangelical kind of thinking. And so let's put that out there because CNN doesn't do that. And so he's done well. But it's a profit-motivated and driven scheme. But sometimes as Christians we, we, we get duped into thinking that this is Christian and this is not. That's not Christian. That is another way to make money. You cannot have a Christian t-shirt. There's nothing inherently Christian about a t-shirt. Because you can put that t-shirt on and be absolutely opposed to God. And so you got a t-shirt on that says his pain, you know, my gain. And it's got Jesus and a cross. And, and then you're treating people like garbage. See, that's not what Jesus is. Wants for us at all. He says, you know what? Buy a regular shirt and live your life like me. And people will be drawn to that. People aren't drawn to a bumper sticker. Have you ever heard of anyone that got saved because their bumper sticker said, you know, turn or burn. You know, Jesus is coming back and boy is he pissed, you know. <laughs> I mean, that is not leading people to Jesus. The, the, the fact of the matter is that these teachings is, is what people need to see in our life. That's what, that's what we're, we're about. Now, please, don't get me wrong. If you have a bumper sticker, great. We used to have church bumper stickers. I never put one on because I'm not a great driver. I've been, known, I've been known to tailgate from time to time. I have an excuse. I only have one eye. I can't. My depth perception isn't good. Might be that. It might be that people drive too slow. But if you have a Christian T-shirt and, and you're wearing it for the Lord and it, and it gives you opportunities, praise God. But live for Him. Show Jesus on your face. Show Jesus by your actions. And then wear a shirt if that's what you want to do. If you like Christian music, praise the Lord. I don't dislike Christian music. But I also listen to secular music. I don't listen to garbage. But there's a lot of great music out there. Put out by people who are gifted by God. There's great art and there's great books. And if we just are so... Myopic and in our own little bubble and is that a christian book was it written by a christian author? I mean come on There are principles and things that we can learn from lots of different kinds of people And i'll say something else about books that maybe you haven't heard a pastor say before Read books you disagree with don't just read books that you agree with the content If all you do is read books by authors that you agree with you'll never learn anything You'll never be challenged Read books that you don't necessarily agree with. If you're a, a Christian who's very dispensational and you're at end times eschatology and you, you believe in, in premillennial, pre-tribulational uh, eschatology, if all you ever do is read books written by those guys, you're never going to learn. You're never going to be challenged. The books written by people with opposing views are written by people that love God. And, and they're trying to wrestle with these things, and, and they're trying to figure it out just as intensely and sincerely as the dispensational guy that wrote his book. And so we can be challenged by thinking outside the box a little bit. And I want you guys to understand that Jesus is not saying hate the culture. Isolate yourself. Only go to Christian coffee houses. Only buy from Christian manufacturers. Only go to Christian mechanics. No. Buy products From people that do a good job. Go to a mechanic that does a good job. I've done the whole Christian mechanic thing. And had my car breaking down every other mile. Finally I said you know what. I'm going to bring my car to a heathen. That I can share with. That's going to fix it. That's going to make it run. That's what I'm spending my money on. So I I hope you get the point. We aren't supposed to be counter culture in the sense of let's run away and hide let's retreat to the mountains and build a big house and we can all live there together that is so opposed to the new testament i mean it sounds fun and you know what it sounds like heaven we're not called to have heaven here on earth we're going to go to heaven and everything's going to be christian in heaven it's going to be amazing but we're not living there yet sometimes i think we're a little premature with with our expectations And so Jesus begins to teach them. And he teaches them in a a series of fours. Four blessings, four woes, four commands, four examples. And so the four blessings called the Beatitudes. Now this sermon, some scholars believe, is an excerpt of what is called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Now obviously it's not the exact sermon because that is three chapters long. So it's either excerpts from that sermon or it's a completely different sermon that Jesus gave where he refers to some of the same principles and teachings. Now I believe that because I know as a preacher that I repeat myself a lot. So I got to believe that it would have been very easy for Jesus to have repeated himself and said similar things to people in different times and places. And there's enough distinctions In this, yes, similarities, but enough distinctions that I believe this is not the same sermon. And I think it does help us to interpret it accurately. And so the four blessings. He says, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And so the first blessing is, blessed are you poor. Now Matthew, in his beatitude, says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's more general in its context Where here Jesus says, blessed are you. It's personal and it's just poor, not poor in spirit. Now many believe that that Luke just left that off and that he is speaking figuratively just like Matthew in recording Jesus in chapter 5. I don't think so. I think if Luke wanted to say poor in spirit, he would have. If he was speaking figuratively figuratively. Referring to Jesus' teachings figuratively, he would have made that clear, but he doesn't. And then if you look at the antithesis of these blessings, the woes, starting in verse 24, as they're juxtaposed to one another, it says, Woe to you who are rich. And so the opposite of poor is rich. He doesn't say, blessed are those of you who are Who understand your need for God and woe to you who don't. He says poor and rich. And so I'm going to take that literally uh, here in this context. Where in Matthew, I think it's figuratively. And so what does that mean? Blessed are, are, are the poor. Blessed are you who are poor. Because some of you may be saying, well, man, I must be really blessed. Because I'm poor. Is that what he's saying? Because I think pragmatically, practically speaking, we know that isn't true. If you've ever been poor or you are poor, you know that's not a blessing. It's not a blessing to not have food or to not be able to pay your rent. It's not a blessing to to drive a car that doesn't run and to be constantly broken down. It's not a blessing to not be able to to give your kids uh, opportunities that other kids have. That's not a blessing. Many would say that's a curse. Nor is Jesus just taking out a segment of society and saying, you're blessed and everybody else, well, forget you. And so that the poor people can walk away feeling good about themselves. No, Jesus is saying something very specific, having to do, I believe, with money, but it's your heart. Because the Gospel of Luke has as its theme, one of its themes, a a sub-theme for sure, the issue of how you handle your money and how you handle your possessions. And in chapter 12, we're going to get into that very specifically. As Jesus says that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And so, blessed are you poor. That is those that do not rely upon the world system of wealth. That is those whose world is not consumed with and focused upon money. Now, you don't have to be rich to have that be true of you. Now, it's often true of those who are rich, but it is also often true of those that are poor. And so what Jesus is teaching us is not so much how much money do you have, but how do you handle that which you do have, and does it drive you? Is it what gets you out of bed in the morning? Is it your focus? Is it all that you talk about? Andrea has a family member who I think at one time was wealthy, but he's just giving all of his money to his kids, supporting them, but that's a completely different story. If you're around this man for any length of time, all that you will hear him talk about is money and the opportunities that he missed. And man, if I was just smart, I would have bought these houses, all those houses right there, I could have bought them for $10,000. You know how much they're worth now? $400,000. And he'll drive you around and tell you of all the opportunities that he's missed and how much money he's made and He just talks about money, 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 money. You can be poor and do the same. And so Jesus is saying, Blessed are you who are not controlled by money. Whose life does not consist in the pursuit of money. Because yours is the kingdom of God. See, you're storing up your treasures in heaven. And you can do that whether you're rich or poor. You can do that whether you've got a huge bank account and and you make six figures. Or you've got nothing in your bank, and you're getting phone calls from creditors. How do you look at money? It's like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and he was, I think, responding to Jesus' teachings, wondering, Jesus, why is it that, that you're not promoting people like me? People who have lived by the letter of the law, legalists, people who are good and righteous and upstanding. Why is it that That you're hanging around sinners and you're telling them that that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is it with that? And, And he goes to Jesus and he says, Okay, Jesus, what is it that I need to do? And Jesus, knowing that he had kept the law from his youth, didn't tell him quit lying, quit cheating, quit blaspheming God. That wasn't this guy's problem. He was upright. What Jesus said to him is, Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Jesus didn't say that as some kind of an umbrella by which everybody needs to get under to be saved. That everybody's got to go and sell everything they have. No, he said it to him very specifically and pointedly. Knowing that this man's life was controlled by his possessions. And so he said to him, go sell everything you have. And the guy went away sad because it wasn't possible for him. Because his identity was found in his money. His very life revolved around his possessions. And if that's you this morning, you're not blessed. Jesus warns you. Yours isn't the kingdom of heaven. Your kingdom is right here on this earth. Jesus said, blessed are you that hunger. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. This this word hunger here, it, it has the idea of an intense longing for something. And I think what Jesus is speaking of is those that understand what it is to go without. Those that understand that God is their provider. That they don't trust in themselves. That they trust in the Lord as their provider. And those that do that, those that are trusting in God, they understand that although they may go without now, they will be filled. They will be satisfied. That, that there's a satisfaction that is coming for them. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. That is those who have been deeply wounded and hurt in this life. And Jesus is going to go on to to talk to those people in this teaching about how to handle yourself. But those that weep, those that have been deeply wounded and hurt, blessed are you, because you will be filled with joy. There is joy coming for you. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven for in like manner they did to the prophets. And so blessed are you that are hated, persecuted and making sacrifices for your faith. Why? Why is that a blessing? That doesn't sound like a blessing Well, it's a blessing because you're identifying with Jesus and and all that he went through. And it's a blessing because your reward is in heaven, not here on the earth. And so now Jesus gives the four woes that are the exact opposite of the four blessings. But woe to you who are rich, you that are possessed by your possessions, you who have money as your God, woe to you for you've received your consolation. Hey, if if money's your God, then you better go spend it and eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die and you've got nothing. I mean, enjoy it while you can. You know all of the principles that we're learning from Dave Ramsey on Wednesday nights? You know what? If you're not a Christian, forget them. What's the point? I mean, just live for this world. Pursue your own pleasure. Don't save so that you can give. Don't manage your money well so that you can... Help someone else out? Blow it. I mean, it's your God. But know that when the party's over, you're going to pay a heavy price. And those that are not controlled by money, they're going to be rewarded eternally. And so think about the investment. What do you want to invest in? Something that has a very short-term reward and return or something that has eternal rewards and returns? Woe to you who are full For you shall hunger. Those that have always trusted in themselves, those that have always been able to take care of themselves and they don't need God, like a very wealthy businessman in this community when asked about his relationship to God and what he thought about Jesus, his response was, I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I don't need Christianity. I've got money. He was full. But unless he gave his life to Jesus before he died, he's hungry now. He's wishing that he hadn't put all of his trust in himself. Woe to those who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. And so these things are in opposition to the blessings. And these blessings and these woes really relate vertically. It's our relationship to God. These blessings and these woes. But now Jesus is going to. To change the focus from vertical to horizontal, from our relationship to God to our relationship with others. See, and when our relationship with God is where it needs to be, when we are in this place of blessing, then it will enable us to then have these horizontal commands taking place in our life. But if vertically you're out of alignment, if vertically, you are not in the place that Jesus speaks of here in your relationship to God, then horizontally these principles and these commands are going to be impossible for you. Not unlikely, but impossible. You have to deal with your relationship with God first. Get that right, and then you'll be able to... Put these principles into practice and you'll be able to heed these commands. And they are commands. There's four of them. And then Jesus gives four examples of how to implement them in your life and how they'll look. And they relate to people in your life specifically, listen, your enemies. Remember we started this section with Jesus going to prayer because people want to kill him. And now Jesus is going to tie that up. And he really sums it up in verses 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, listen, you can be here this morning and not hear what I'm saying. You can read this and not hear what Jesus is saying. Jesus is speaking to a multitude and he says, look, those of you that hear, knowing that there's going to be a lot that won't, a lot have already tuned him out just like, yep, I'm done with that. And you can listen and you can be cognizant of words Going into your eardrums, but not hear what is being said. Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. You know, we're always wanting God to speak to us. And people say that a lot. God hasn't spoken to me in years. I want God to speak to me. Here's two verses out of the multitude, the thousands of verses in the Bible that I'm certain that I don't apply, and I'm pretty certain that you don't. And so I wonder if God doesn't speak to us because He says, Look, I've already given you something to do and you're not doing it. And so why don't you set about doing that and then we'll talk later? These are filled with truth that is absolutely in opposition to the way we live our life. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those that curse you. Pray for those that spitefully use you. Love people who want to kill you, who want to make your life miserable, your enemies. Do good. See, this is proactive. This isn't just ignore them. This is do good to them. See, and you've probably been given a lot of advice in how to handle people who are your enemies. Remember like when you were in first grade and you got beat up and you came home and you told your your mom and dad, and your dad's like, well, let me teach you how to fight, that's what my dad did, he's like, let me teach you how to fight, and so he takes you over in the corner, and then mom's back there, you don't do that, just ignore him. and that's the advice you were given, dad's like, fight, here you go, here, punch me, right in the chest, come on, right now, give it all you got, and you punch, he's like, is that all you got, come on, do it hard, and he's teaching how to fight, and mom's like, just ignore them, don't do anything, just pretend like they're, they don't exist, That's not what Jesus says at all here. Jesus doesn't say fight, and Jesus doesn't say ignore. He says do good to them. So when Caitlin comes home and tells me the kids at school are mean, and there's this one girl that Andrea always says, I wish I could beat that girl up. That's how Andrea wants to handle it, right? And I'm thinking, okay, Caitlin, let me teach you how to fight. And then we hear Jesus, and he says do good to them who hate you. And how that might work out in your own life would be different. But do good to them. So maybe for Caitlin, it's giving some of her candy to these kids that hate her. Maybe for you, it's giving work to a subcontractor who's just spoken horribly about you. Or or maybe it's covering a shift for somebody at work who's always trying to make you look bad. And, And now... They desperately need a day off and if you don't cover it for them, they won't be able to take it and, and you take the day off for them. And you don't think that's going to impact them? Jesus said, bless those that curse you. And I want you to apply this the next time you get cussed out. That's what it means to be cursed. So the next time you're at work and your boss or a coworker or a patient or a client, a customer is just cussing you out, I want you just to look at them and go, You know what? I am so thankful for your business. I'm so glad that you're here. So glad that you've chosen to patronize our particular business when you could have gone anywhere else. I'm so thankful for the job that you've given me. I know there are a lot of subcontractors out there, and you've hired me. And I know that I screwed this particular thing up right now, and I'm really sorry for that. And I deserve everything you're saying. All the F-bombs you're dropping, all the things you're saying about my mom, I deserve it. I deserve all of it. And I want you to say that to them. And I want you to see the look on their face when they are absolutely under confusion as to how to handle themselves. What? What did you say? Jesus said, pray for those who spitefully use you. That is those that abuse you. That's what that word means, spitefully use you. Those that have abused you. What does he say? Get back at them. Have a little pincushion that looks like them and a little voodoo doll. Mm-mm. Hope that they die. He says, pray for them. And you know what? This might be a, a, a work in progress for you. Where maybe initially you start praying for them. And it's like, Lord, I, I pray that you would kill them. That's what I pray, God. Just, yeah, kill them. And God's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And then it, it progresses a little bit. It's like, okay, Lord, if you're not going to kill them, then just give them some nasty disease. Something, maybe that won't kill them, but that will never go away. Give them syphilis or something. And the Lord's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so then you're like, okay, Lord, well, I guess bless them. And I mean, I've been there where I know that I'm supposed to pray for somebody that I just absolutely hate. And it's even hard for me to utter the words, God bless them. Because I'm just thinking in in my mind, they're going to be blessed. They're going to have all kinds of money. They're going to have a fulfilled life. And I'm over here miserable. See, what God wants to do is change your life, change your heart. And as you're praying for people, you can't help but be changed. And it might start with, Lord, kill him Or God, give them syphilis. But then it transforms into, God, bless them. And your heart begins to change. And it's radical. And you know what? Some of you have been hurt and abused in just absolutely horrifying ways. And I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying that, that I do this well. I'm just saying this is what Jesus teaches us, that you need to pray. You need to pray for that person who maybe physically abused you. Maybe you had a parent or a family member who who abused you, who physically abused you or sexually abused you or verbally abused you or neglected you. And you need to pray for them. See, this isn't door number one, you know, in the Christianity, price is right. Which door are you going to choose? Is it going to be pray for them? Or is it option number two? under Behind door number two, be bitter and hate them your entire life. Hope that they die. Burn their house down. Kidnap their dog and torture them. That, that is not option number two. There's only one option. This is a command. Pray for them. Bless them. Love them. Do good to them. That's what Jesus is commanding us. And so he gives us Four commands, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those that abuse you, and then he gives four examples of how this ought to look. Verses 29 and 30, to him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. Now when Jesus speaks about turning the other cheek, he isn't talking about being passive in the face of a physical assault. He isn't saying that we shouldn't go to war. He isn't saying, wives, just let your husbands beat you up. That's what I want for you. That kind of ridiculous counsel that is given by pastors. Oh, you should turn the other cheek, lady. Just let him pummel you. That is ridiculous. It's not what Jesus is saying. He means that we should not defend ourselves in the face of a grievous insult. In that culture, the slap on the cheek was more... An attack on honor than a physical assault. So Jesus isn't saying don't go to war. Don't be a patriot. Jesus isn't saying women just let your husbands use you as a punching bag. He's saying when you are insulted, then let them insult you more. Don't defend yourself. See, and this is easy for us when someone insults us in a manner that we don't really care about. It was kind of like at family camp. Everybody was making fun of me because I couldn't get up on the kneeboard. And I looked like a complete idiot out there, and I was sore for like six weeks. It was horrifying. But I didn't really care because I don't take pride in kneeboarding. I've done it like six times. I mean, come on. Who cares, right? But when somebody insults my Bible teaching, something I've poured my life into, now those are fighting words. And we'll go to the mat for that, right? And so don't think of yourself high and mighty because you can turn the other cheek when somebody says something you don't really care about. It's when it hurts you. How do you respond? It, it, it's, it's when somebody that you could take. You know, it's like people that, that pride themselves. Yeah, the guy, I mean, he was, he was rude to me and I just walked away. Yeah, he's like 6'5", 250 pounds. You were scared for your life. You had all kinds of things you wanted to say. But if the guy's like 5'6", 135 pounds, yeah, you'd have knocked him out. It's just like your boss. Your boss insults you and says all kinds of things, and you're thinking, this is a tough economy. Jobs aren't that good. <laughs> Bite my tongue, right? And you pride yourself on that. But how about the lowly co-worker who has less seniority than you? When they insult you, how do you handle it? If someone takes your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And again, culturally, they, they would go to court over things, and the judge might say, okay, I rule that you give them your cloak, your coat. Jesus said, well, not only give them that, but give them your shirt also. Go the extra mile. Give to everyone who asks of you. And so don't worry about being taken advantage of. Now we're learning these principles from Dave Ramsey on Wednesday night about not lending to people and and not just being an enabler. And I think that is biblical, but the motive is love. See, you ask for a loan, and I know, man, you are not handling your money right. You're blowing it. You need to reprioritize. You need to get a budget going. And so I withhold that loan from you because I know it's the best thing for you. It's out of love. I, I'm not withholding it because I'm tight, because I'm holding on to my money. Forgive you, dude. I worked hard for this. By the way, you're never going to pay me back. I saw what you did with that other person. No, see, that's the wrong kind of heart. Jesus said, unless your motive is love, then give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, now we're talking about stealing. Not somebody that asks, somebody that steals it. Do not ask for those things back. Really? I mean, again, this is in complete opposition to the way that I look at things. Somebody steals, I want my stuff back, I want to kill them, and I want everything they've ever owned. But Jesus said, don't, don't ask it back. Don't worry about it. See, this is in direct correlation to your relationship with God and your relationship with your money. See, when you're in right relationship with God, you're not possessed by your possessions. And so when people take them from you, it's like, oh, can't take it with, with you anyway. These last three examples come as a result of not being planted in, in, in the world. The, these things relating uh, to your money. You know that your father's going to take care of you. And so you're not trying to protect your stuff. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Now who's Jesus talking about? And what's the context? He's talking about enemies. And so you think about the enemies in your life. You think about the people that have harmed you and abused you. And you write a list of how you wish they would have treated you. How you wish they would have spoken to you. And raised you. The the things you wish had been done to you. And then you take that list that you've created. And you go and do that to them. That's unbelievable. That would change the world. If we could let down our guard. If we would have soft hearts. If we would say, yes, I've been hurt. I've been abused. But God, I forgive them. And God, I'm now going to go and to do to them what I wish they would have done to me. Unreal. Jesus isn't talking about the little old lady across the street so much. I bake cookies for Merble across the street. Well, of course, everybody does. She's nice. Jesus isn't talking about the person who has provided for you and loved on you and cared for you. It would be just natural to give back to them. And that's what he goes on to say. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Even sinners love Merble across the street. It's Bob, the other neighbor, whose dog poops in your yard. Or who built a fence on your property. And, and you know it's yours. And you, you're saying, Bob, this is mine. And you built a fence here. And you're a foot on my property. Oh, well, it's too late now. Sorry. Well, and by the way, Bob, your, your fence isn't working because your dog's still pooping in my yard. See, it's not Merble across the street, it's Bob. And maybe it's even worse than that. Maybe it's mom and dad. Maybe it's mom who just criticized you and was horribly mean to you. Maybe it was dad who, who abused you. Maybe it was an uncle. And, and Jesus says, look, if you're just loving those that have loved you, that's not Christian. That's normal. Sinners do that. Godless people do that. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. And so what does it mean to be a child of God? It means to do these things, to apply these things. This is Christianity, see? What does it mean to be a Child of God. It means that you're counterculture. It means that you're not living toward the pattern of this world. You're living in exact opposition to this world. And I want you guys to think about your own life in relationship to these teachings and to say, Is this true of me? If it isn't, then what's going on? Have I walked away from Jesus? Did I never know Him? Do I have the Holy Spirit in my life? This is what it means to be a child of the Most High. Because he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. See, you have to remember that God has poured out his grace and his love upon the whole world. God loves that person who's harmed you and abused you. Man, that's hard. That's hard to fathom. But he loves them and he's forgiven them. Therefore, in light of that, if you are harboring bitterness and resentment and anger, then you're in opposition to God. Because you ought to be merciful just as your father also is merciful. See, Jesus showed us how it's done at the cross. After being falsely accused and innocently beaten, having his beard ripped from his face, being mocked and whipped and drugged through the city like a dog, being crucified on a cross, tortured. What does Jesus say to them? I mean, I got lots of things that I would have said. I mean, Jesus, do you need me to help you out? Do you need some sarcasm? Do you need some rude comments? I mean, I got them for you. And, and Jesus says, Father, forgive them. No, no, this isn't right. Jesus, you, you must be mistaken here. Are you under delusion? Is, is the pain getting to you? Father, forgive them. Father, strike them. Father, kill them. No, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As people are walking, spitting on him, mocking him. He's the creator of the universe. I mean, couldn't you have just taken out one or two of them just to show everybody who's the boss? That's what I want you to do, Jesus. Rambo Jesus. But Jesus forgives and he loves and he blesses. And that's what he asks of you and of me. So you can't say, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. And then be in opposition to these things. This is at the very heart of Christianity, you guys. This is what Christianity is. Again, it's not door number one, forgive, let go, bless. Door number two, bitter, hateful, revenge. There's no option. And so Jesus sums up his teaching basically by saying, this is what it means to be a child of God. And the power that you need in order to implement this is found in him. He's not only the example. Too often Jesus is propped up as an example. He's more than an example. He's the one that wants to flow through you. To make it happen. And so if, if this isn't how you're living. Then that means your life is aligned with the world. And you're in opposition to God. You're going in the opposite direction. That God would have you to go. And he wants you to repent. And to turn toward him. And to begin to follow these things. These commands. Begin to love the unlovable. That's what Jesus asks of you and of me. It's a tall order. And one that if you try to do on your own, you will fail every single time. We need his power to do it. We're gonna have people to to pray with you. And I can imagine that, that there's many of you that that need someone to come alongside and to and to pray for you and to help you through these things. This is radical stuff, guys. This is absolutely counterculture to everything I've ever been taught. It's absolutely in opposition to everything that the world tells you. But the beautiful thing about it is when we implement these things, we can turn this world upside down. See, it's loving our enemies that's going to make people want Jesus. It's not a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. Man, you start loving the unlovable, and all of a sudden Jesus becomes real relevant. Real fast. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we uh, we pray that these things would not just go in one ear and out the other, God. That we wouldn't just be hearers, God. But we'd want to be doers of your word. Lord, that we would want to put these things into practice, God. So that we can radically make an impact on this community. On our families. God, there are people here that are holding bitterness and anger. That are trying to get revenge. That are pounding on doors and making phone calls, trying to get money back from people. And Lord, you're just telling them, let it go, let it go, forgive, do good to them, bless them. Lord, I wish this wasn't in the Bible. This is tough. This is crazy. But God, you've called us to it. You've commanded it of us. And I pray that you would give us the power to bring it to pass for your glory in Jesus name. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.